0: 21cl radio you're listening to the run your life podcast with host andy vassal Hello everybody. Welcome to my Run Your Life podcast series. In today's episode, actually I'm back in Canada right now and I've been so lucky over the last few days to meet up with some wonderful people and record podcasts with uh, people like Joey Feit and and, uh, on Friday with uh, Dr. Tim Fletcher who my guest today knows very well. Um, But on today's show uh, I'm speaking to A friend although we've never met in person I still consider him a friend we've known each other uh, we've talked to each other on on Skype several times over the past few years Uh, his name is Doug Gleddy Uh, I'm not going to tell you anything about Doug you'll learn everything about him as the podcast goes on Uh, but Doug is in his office at the University of Alberta at the moment correct Doug
1: Uh, that is correct
0: yeah Um, so I'm going to have Doug say a few words about himself first, and then, uh, we'll move forward with the podcast. So Doug, what do you want to say? What do you want to tell the world about yourself?
1: Whew, that's a big question. Um, you know what? It's, it's interesting because titles and all these fun things, but, uh, I think a couple of the important things for me is I'm first of all a mover and within that, um, you know, a husband and a father and a teacher, and a professor, all words that just kind of stack up. But, uh, you know, my, my current situation is I'm an assistant professor at University of Alberta and working on, well, I teach pre-service teachers and also uh, work with grad students and do some research in physical education, physical literacy, and educative experience.
0: How long have you been at the University of Alberta?
1: Uh, this will be three and a half years here. And before that? Uh, I had kind of a roundabout
0: way to coming here. So I, <laughs> I didn't know what I wanted to do
1: after my first undergrad degree, which was a Bachelor of Arts in History with concentration in phys ed. And I kept the phys ed up high because that's always been part of my life. Um, and I did a bunch of different things, thought I might want to be a cop for a little while, uh, decided not to do that although I did really well in the obstacle course, yeah. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, I, I taught overseas for a while and eventually came to realize that, that I, um, you know, I do identify as a teacher, I have skills as a teacher, so I pursued that, I taught largely junior high, but, but pretty much K to 12, phys ed, social studies, math, science, you know, I was a social studies phys ed double major for my ed degree, and my first job was math science, so... It's, uh, if you can't adapt as a teacher, you're in big trouble. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I did a run as, you know, doing a lot of teaching phys ed, department head, that kind of thing. And then I had an opportunity to become the director of an organization here in Alberta that's called Ever Active Schools. So it was started by actually the Ministry of Tourism, Parks, and Recreation at the time to, to help change school environments to be more supportive of physical activity. Um, by the time I got on board, uh, education had thrown in some funding as well as health, <clears throat> put in some funding, and essentially the organization embraced the comprehensive school of health or health promoting schools philosophy. And uh, yeah, I had the organization or I had the uh, privilege to lead that organization for six years and standing on the shoulders of those that went before me. And it was a really cool experience because I got to you know travel around Alberta, visit a lot of different schools, and indeed in the, around the country and to a limited extent around the world, but just to really have a deep understanding of how schools work and the role of, of health in schools, um, whether it's physical education, curriculum, whether it's uh, a healthy school snack program, whatever it is. So from there, I, uh, I had started a master's degree before then and just kind of wanted to learn more about the kids I was teaching. Um, so I did my master's actually on um, kind of the, the experience of minor hockey for students because uh, when I looked at the research no one was asking kids about what they thought and I ended up doing it on hockey just because I, I love hockey and um, it was something concrete that I could research so I just interviewed eight kids and that's where my passion for research kind of started I really started to learn how it works and, and more importantly what you can do with it I would count myself as a very pragmatic researcher um, there's a Greek word praxis that that's the the junction of theory and practice without either one taking supremacy, and I, I really like that term. Actually, Tim Fletcher, who you talked with last week, um, we had a grant that was had that as the title um, to try and get some of that going here in Canada. But that's a whole other whole other story. Yeah, um, so it was just really interesting talking to the kids about their experience and what was fun for them. How were they challenged? How would they define success? Um, so that kind of ignited things. So when I was working with Everactive then, um, and incidentally, it took me three times to get that job. I finished second two times and <laughs> yeah. finally, finally got the job. Yeah. So it was an interesting process. Uh, and then, yeah, over, I just decided to do a PhD. Wasn't sure if I wanted to be an academic or not, but um, just really passionate about helping. Uh, helping pre-service teachers establish an identity as a phys ed teacher, establish the value of phys ed, and to go out there and and do good things.
0: So if you had to, you know, you told us a little bit about what you do, but if you had to sum up kind of um, your, I don't want to say your philosophy, but your area of interest and passion when it comes to physical education, how could you succinctly kind of sum that up?
1: Yeah, well, first thing you need to know about me is I'm a little bit ADD, so and I embrace that fully. Um, so I don't, like, there are many researchers that have one agenda, one piece that's gone through, and I've got some pieces that kind of roll in and out of each other. So I would say the, the kind of the main driving force through that is physical education, teacher education. Um, in, in, where I'm at right now, I'm in the Department of Elementary Education, so I teach exclusively elementary generalists, who are not phys ed specialists,
0: um, so how to teach physical education to so 6 Classroom teachers. You got it. Yeah.
1: Because uh, well we have in Alberta anyways, we do have some areas that have specialist elementary teachers, uh, phys ed teachers, but for the most part people do their own phys ed. So that's where I feel it's really critical then. And, you know, we get a certain amount of time to do that here. It's never enough. Um, all, all subjects would argue that it's never enough. But So I'd say that's the the main focus of, or I guess the main thread running through, the main passion for me is is how do we do this right? How do we make sure this has a lasting impact? So if I walk into a former student's classroom, you know, five, ten years down the road, they still have a passion for phys ed. Their kids' students have a passion for phys ed. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff that comes into that research. Some of the physical literacy stuff that I've been diving into, rolls into that because really that's what, you know, physical education is a tool to help individuals move along their individual physical literacy journey. Um, And that's, you know, you look at the aims of phys ed curriculum across the world and most of it is some distillation of knowledge, skills, and attitudes to be healthy and active for life, which is essentially physical literacy, finding that journey, being able to make decisions, you know, if you blow your knee out at 35, uh, hopefully your choice is not okay. I'm going to the couch now because I'm done. No, your your choice is okay. So I can't do it. You know, I can't cut on my knee anymore. What can I do? What are my What are my options? You know, maybe I take up kayaking. You got You got options. So that's that's the main thread. And then with physical literacy, kind of running through there and looking at because we have a lot on the theory of physical literacy. Um, and we're just starting to get into some, I think, really exciting times on kind of operationalizing that theory. What does it look like if you walk into a gym or you walk into a field? What does it look like for that teacher and for those kids that there's a focus on creating physically literate people? Yeah, and so I've got a project.
0: Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just along that lines. I, I was, I was just going to say that you know with, the, I think our physical education network on social media and Twitter is without question the the largest represented subject area on Twitter. You know, the ed hashtag. Wow. You know, there's a math hashtag, there's a science hashtag, there's a history hashtag, but the ed hashtag is very, very out there, you know? Um, yeah. I think of the new teachers going on to Twitter, I think of existing teachers on Twitter, uh, you know, there's talk of quality physical education, there's talk of physical literacy, the TGFU, uh, sport education, all of these models and frameworks. It can be a little overwhelming and a little confusing, especially to teachers who are just trying to, to define uh, what it is they need to do to get better and refine their teaching practice. So what's your advice to teachers listening to this who are unsure of next moves in regards to becoming better at what they do?
1: No, great, yeah, great question. Because um, it's kind of like you know that classic cliche. You know, you're trying to drink water from a fire hose, right? It's just there's so much there. I I do think though, and this and I, I, this is your podcast. Can I ask you a question? Absolutely. Okay, cool. I love it. So, why do you think? Why do you think phys ed teachers are so well represented and those with an interest in phys ed so well represented on Twitter, just as one example?
0: I would think probably because they have felt so marginalized and and have had limited access to professional development that they're they're realizing that there's a whole network of teachers out there that they can reach out to and connect with. That, that would be what I say.
1: Yeah, and I... You know, I'd I'd fully agree with that. I think for most of us that have been, you know, teaching phys ed, quite often you're the only person in your school, um, or there's maybe a couple of you, and when it comes time for your school PD day, it's on literacy and numeracy, sometimes you can make connections, sometimes you can't. So I think when people are looking for things, my first piece of advice would be to, you know, be concrete about what you're looking for. So if you're, if you really have no idea on how to teach gymnastics, but you know, it's part of your curriculum, then start with that, you know, start with that small piece, start where you want to be. And then I, I would say, even though we have this beautiful, wonderful worldwide Twitter network, it is still important to connect with people, even like we are face to face over Skype, but even better, um. To connect with those in your local area too. Doesn't mean you can't connect outside and the outside stuff is valuable too but if you can connect with and you know how cool is it if a grade five teacher at one school can connect with a grade five teacher you know maybe 20 kilometers away and they can get together via google drive via skype and they can craft things together and they can share experiences and feedback and reflective practice and you know that's we couldn't do that 20 years ago even 10 years ago. So to tap into your local network, you know, most states, provinces have a health and phys ed council, community, association, whatever it is. That's an important point of contact too. you. So that's another way to kind of dive in.
0: Yeah, um, one of the, the things, too, that's very good advice, Doug. And um, one of the things, too, is I was just thinking, as I was listening to you, I, I was thinking about teachers in the network and obviously it's incredibly important to have content knowledge. There's no question. You know, teachers need to know their craft. They need to know um, the the basics of good teaching within each unit that they teach, you know. But it's also that idea of, um, you know, having autonomy over the areas that they want to pursue with their teaching, right? So that's what's happening on Twitter, that teachers are... I want to learn more I want to learn more about this therefore I'm connecting with these teachers and these researchers Having said that there is also the definite element of teachers having certain areas that they really need to improve upon Sometimes yep. these areas are not being addressed so they're they're pursuing angles that they're just interested in whereas they should also be balancing that with what it is they absolutely need to get better at. So there's there's a fine line there. And Joey fight yesterday. Um, we both know Joey quite well. Uh, he talked about you know areas that he definitely has to improve upon, and he's set goals for improving upon these areas, and he's devoted the year to improving upon these areas. But um, it's that idea of autonomy in one sense that so you want to give teachers the freedom to pursue the areas that they want to explore and get better. Better at, but also identify what it is they need to improve upon. So, what what is your take on that?
1: Oh, I absolutely, and we've we've had this conversation on Twitter before. I, I know um, uh, Nathan Horn with his what's his new uh, podcast, the Fundamental uh, Movement.
0: Uh, yeah, so I'm I'm doing that with Nathan, S- and Joey, and Dean Dudley, yeah. and Aaron yeah. Beadley. Yeah,
1: and I think you know I was just looking at that at the podcast I just actually subscribed to it the other day and, and the idea that you know there's none of this I think the quote was Twitter backslapping yes or something like that from and, our and there from is our that friend tendency, d- and some of it's completely natural you know if I'm going to put myself out there I'm going to put my best part out there
0: yes you
1: know it just to me it's like going on a date for the first time even though I haven't you know well, that's not true. I, I go on dates with my wife all the time. So yeah. I was gonna say I haven't dated for twenty one years, but that's not true at all. Yeah. And she'd get very mad at me. So please scratch that from the record. <laughs> yeah.
2: It's scratched. But, you know, but, but when you go out on a date for the first
1: time, you don't show up you don't, you know, just woke up, didn't brush your teeth, didn't comb your hair, still wearing your pajamas. No, you put your best face forward, like you put your best version of yourself forward. Now eventually as you know, you just celebrated, what, a 17-year yeah. anniversary? Yeah, yesterday. Hey, congrats. Yeah, thanks, man. Congrats. Oh, double yeah. congrats just yesterday. So you know that as you get to know each other, of course you get to know each other deeper, but you also see each other's flaws. It doesn't mean you stop loving somebody, but uh, this is getting into a relationship podcast now.
0: But That's fine. Good teaching is about relationships. But
1: same. Yeah, but it's the same with Twitter. If it never goes deeper, and, you know, I just um, I co-wrote a, a chapter with Ashley Casey and Joey Fife and a few other people, that was a really interesting process And because it, you know, Joey put himself out there to reflect on his practice and then we all came into it from different angles and, and gave him some more stuff and then he came back and reflected on it. And we have to be critical of ourselves and sometimes we need that critical friend to go, you know what, Andy, I love what you're doing, you're doing great stuff. However, you're sweeping this up under the rug. It's It's not happening. And we can have that conversation. But you can't get there until you have established that relationship, that connection. Yeah. And And I, you know, I...
0: I I was just going to say that I had done a chapter in that same book with Tim Fletcher. And... uh, Oh, perfect. Yeah. And so I I know that process. And and, and that process was really valuable. Uh, And Joey and I talked about his chapter yesterday and my chapter with Tim Fletcher and what we kind of experienced going through that and... It started with us and then, then you know, in my case I got um, critical feedback from uh, four four different um, professors, four researchers it from, yeah. from different areas and then you receive that feedback and then you reflect on it. It's a really valuable process to go through.
1: Oh, I, I agree. And, you know, I think when we're close enough with – People like I, I've had instances in my, my professional practice as a teacher where I've had a colleague kind of call me out on things. And, you know, at first it's kind of tense, it's thorny, it's uncomfortable, but when you realize they're not doing it out of spite, they're doing it because they want you to be better, they're doing it because you want your students to have a better connection. But, again, you can't do that without the relationship. And I, I you know what, I was really fortunate to be able to address uh, about 1200 of my colleagues at a national conference here in banff in 2009 and i was asked to give an address and you know i only had like 15 minutes and i i really really struggled with what to say because the guidelines were very broad it was just well whatever you want to say to phys teachers i was okay (laughs) and i really fought with it i went back and forth and and you know i i threw away a lot of drafts and what i ended up with and i you know, just between you and me, and whoever listens to this, I finished it at four in the morning before I had to give my my uh, talk at about nine thirty. Yeah. Um. That's that's my uh, that's my ADD coming to work. You need that pressure. Yeah. To perform. Yeah. Um. But I ended up entitling it a high five and a kick in the pants. Oh, cool. Because I think there, it just really came to me that you know what we are an amazing profession. We are. We've got I. I am so happy to be in this field, you know, I've been almost 23 years now doing this stuff and I just love it more every day and, I, and there was a time when I was looking at maybe doing something else and moving away from phys ed into professional development solely and I just, and actually this conference came at the same time and I just thought I can't, I can't leave this yet, I need to look for other ways to do this but you know sometimes phys ed teachers are our own worst enemies. Because we say things like, oh, yeah, man, I'm a professional athlete. I get paid to play. And, yeah, yeah you, can, you can say, it. no, you're not paid to play. You're paid to educate. Yes. You're paid to be a physical educator. And so that's that was my theme. I, I would go through kind of a piece and i go, okay, turn around, high five. You guys are doing awesome. However, what about this piece? You know, what about just following the sports seasons as your phys ed curriculum? that's a kick in the pants like we shouldn't be doing that anymore so i think having having a venue that you can you can be critical you can be critiqued but it's professional and it's done in a relational way we we need that more than ever
0: yeah that's good advice when uh, a few weeks ago <clears throat> i think well it's about a month ago now um, i was in uh, manila philippines uh, at, at the Earcoast conference which is the east Asian Region uh, Regional Council of Schools Conference, and Ted and Carolyn were there. Ted and Carolyn Temurtsaglu and uh, yeah. Ashley Casey were there. So we all had a, a number of pre- uh, presentations each that we were delivering that for that uh, conference. Uh, I had Ted and Carolyn and Ash on my podcast on the very last day, and and I asked them, you know, to kind of what's your advice? Just like I asked you, what's your advice to teachers wanting to get better and being socially connected and ask them to discuss uh, certain caveats. And uh, it was really interesting to hear their different points of view. And I guess I used as a reference point, the idea that um, anybody with a device can, can post on Twitter. And sometimes when things are posted, the assumption is that person is an expert. When in fact, very few of us are experts, you know, we're just trying our best to figure things out. So I stress the importance of having a healthy skepticism for every single tweet that you see, you know, and and it's okay to question it. And, and, you know, and you should question it. So what are your thoughts? Do you have any other kind of caveats that you would like to talk about?
1: No, I... You know, I think that's a good one. We've always we've all experienced on social media the you know the look and click, the look and share, where you don't you see a title and you go, oh, oh that that sounds awesome. I believe in that. Share it on, retweet without actually going and looking at what it is. And I've been guilty of that too. Yeah, um, it is important to to be you know, and it's important to be self critical. Like I, I, I'm kind of fortunate, I think, in that every like when I teach university classes. Um, my students have a mandatory, well, it's not mandatory for them, but it's mandatory that I give them this form that they anonymously critique my teaching. And sometimes it's really hard, um, because maybe students just didn't get what you're trying to do and, and you go, wow, but I, but that's not what I was doing, but that was their perception and their perception is all they have. And so it is a really valuable process that, you know, every year or every term when my classes end about a month later, I get this this form. And I I reflect on my lessons every day. I try to jot notes and do different things. But when I go back and I look, I try and look at it with a real critical lens, right? And sometimes students say things and you just, you don't know if they're filling out the wrong evaluation because they have nothing to do with what you're, what you've been teaching. Like I had a student say, you know, I really enjoyed the class, but I didn't like all the beer jokes. And I do make jokes in my class, but I don't even like beer. So I don't know that I would have ever you know, made a beer joke, but yet for some reason, that's what the student chose to comment on. So those kind of things you go, okay, does that apply? I don't think so. But when a student goes, you know, I really wish he would take more time to explain what he's doing in the gym rather than just having us experience. I need more credence to that. I have to take a good look at my practice and go, am I reaching all my students? And so that's kind of built in. But if you don't have that, like when we're in schools or we're posting, we don't have that all the Time, So taking that extra bit of time and thinking about things or just throwing out the question, you know, someone goes, well, I think, you know, we should always play with our kids in phys ed class. Even just to send you don't have to deeply go into it and find all sorts of research and evidence, but even just to say, why do you think that? And just, just to have that questioning nature, I think is so cool. Uh, I was fortunate to teach a group of grade uh, nine students I was actually teaching in South America and these kids The year before me no a couple years before me they had a great I guess it was a grade five teacher and he taught them to question everything Everything you write in a book Who's that author? Why are they writing this? What's their political leaning? What's this and he just and so these kids and quite honestly some of the other teachers in the school really didn't like the class because they Questioned everything yeah. they didn't just accept your authority as a teacher And it is hard sometimes as a teacher to do that. But I love those kids. Yeah. Because I would say, you know, here's the assignment we're doing. Well, why? Well, why are you using this guy and not this other person? And we just had the best, you know, really professional conversations back and forth. So if we can do that, and I've had those discussions with, you know, lots of other people that have been on your podcast, and we do need to hold ourselves accountable. And it can be as simple as, you know, in school, maybe your principal doesn't have time to come and see you. Maybe another teacher can't get out of the class to come and watch you teach. Video yourself,
2: yeah. self
1: critique. You know, when I mentioned my master's research earlier, uh, you know, I interviewed these students for the first time. When I went back and listened to those interviewers or to those interviews, holy crap, what a crappy interviewer I was! Yeah, I cut kids off. I talked too much. I did so. The second time I went, I just shut the hell up because and let the kids talk because that's the point but if I
0: would never would have listened to my own, own interviews I never would have got that yeah there I had a um, a woman on my podcast an amazing educator and consultant her name is Kath Murdoch um, she's considered an inquiry guru she's written I think 15 books on inquiry she's based in Melbourne Australia oh. she did a TED talk in Vancouver um, and ha- what she described in Uh, in the TED Talk, and this is what we talked about in the podcast uh, when we recorded, um, she loves those, she gives time for those precious moments of silence. And Mm -hmm. and as teachers, and that's so profound when you think about it, because when I think about my own teaching, and I've gotten better over the years, I really think about the questions I'm going to ask, and then I ask the kids, and I give them what feels like it's five seconds, but it's probably 2.13 seconds. And then I blurt out the answer or I ask another question. And teachers are very uncomfortable with those moments of silence. So yeah. th- that is so important. So what are your thoughts with, with questioning and, and that idea of, of uh, giving time, like creating these precious moments of silence?
1: Oh, absolutely. I think if you look, you know, to put it in kind of that phys ed context, just from one angle, you know, one of the one of the philosophies or theories that we've thrown around is either tactical games or teaching games for understanding. Well, that that model itself has a whole questioning protocol, and and you don't. The idea is, as a teacher, you don't solve things for students. What you do is you you give them an experience that perhaps leads them to a certain conclusion, and you know you can call that. You know, in, in TGFU, it's game. Exagger- you know, it's the concept of exaggeration. So you design a court or a game to exaggerate a certain aspect, so that students have to think about it. You know, you, you're playing tennis, and you play it on a court that's, you know, the regular width of the tennis court, but it's only eight feet deep. Well, students have no choice but to learn to play laterally. Yes. That's their only choice because you've so you've given them an experience that makes them think. But then you don't say, okay, so did you learn how to play laterally? you question how did you have to place the ball how are you successful at scoring points and so that questioning piece can you know it can come into our teaching um with our kids um there's another (laughs) i'll I'll tell you a quick story because it's my best example of questioning and i use this with my students so i won't give you all the details of of the game but it's lots of people have probably played it before it's a it's a lead-up game for actually um kind of batting and fielding or striking sports so it's called chuck the chicken it's really simple you have two lines but you've probably played it before but you've got two lines of people one group they they yell chuck the chicken and they throw it across the gym while they so then the other group has to go to the chicken pick it up pass it under over under over down their line when it gets to the end of the line they then yell chuck the chicken have to throw it meanwhile the first group it forms a circle and the person to chuck the chicken has to run around the circle and score laps. So, and the whole idea is use of space, um, that kind of piece. And so I was playing this, I actually went into my son's, and it was a grade three class and we were playing this game and it was a small class. So we had two groups of kids and they literally stood six feet from each other and they'd go chuck the chicken
2: mm-hmm. and they'd
1: throw it right next to the other group. And that group would pick it up and it would go around, And then they'd throw it six feet from the other group. So they weren't getting the concept of using the space of, because the whole purpose in baseball is hit to where your opponent is not. Yes. And so I pulled the class in and I I asked my my student teachers, I said, what would you do? They're not getting the concept. And invariably a lot of them go, well, tell them to throw it away from each other. Tell Tell them, tell them, tell them, tell them, because we don't want that silence. So what I did with this group was I just said, what's the purpose of the game? Well, we want to score more runs. Okay. How do you do that? And it was quiet for about probably 10 seconds. It might have been shorter, but about 10 seconds. Finally, one kid, like I literally could see the light bulb go bing on top of his head, and he leans in close. He's like, give me the chicken. <laughs> and he grabs it, chuck the chicken, throws it across the gym. Immediately, the other kid, like, oh, you don't throw it towards the other team. Yeah. So they solved it, and that's mu- it's a much more organic process. Yeah, yeah. You know, I could give countless examples of kids being able to come up with this on their own and not, not be told, you know, you can tell someone all you want to move to open space, but until you design an activity that encourages them to do that and rewards them for being successful, and that's where you need the questioning protocol. So whether it's a questioning with your teaching, whether it's questioning for your students, or whether it's questioning for your program and those bigger values, it's absolutely critical. Sorry, that was a really
0: long answer. No, no, it's a great example. Um, I did a podcast on Saturday night with um, a former Canadian Olympian. Uh, He is a beach volleyball. He played on the national team uh, for 14 years. And he talked about his mentor was his coach. And I wish I could remember his name. It was Brian something, but his coach has... uh, profoundly shaped his his life and outside of in and inside of the sport but the amazing thing about his coach was that he wasn't a beach volleyball expert so this guy brought his coach brought um created so many champions and champion teams in in cricket in rugby in in uh beach volleyball in synchronized swimming and and he, he brings in this approach of exactly that. He will not tell the one answer any time that he is working with the teams that he works with or the, or the players that he plays with. Um, and the first practice, uh, my friend's name is Conrad. So the first practice that this coach came in, he's like, okay, what are we going to do today? And they him, Conrad and his partner look at each other and they're like, what are you talking about? And i like, You tell us what we're going to do today. So he had to quickly learn this new style, but it it really empowered him to understand what he needed to do, him and his partner needed to do to pursue excellence. And um, they soon after working with him, it might have been a year or two, they they won gold medal in the Pan Am Games. So, you know, again, this questioning protocol is huge, but as teachers – there's that, again, you, you can't handle that silence and you want to step in and give the answers. So, you know, the stories uh, that you shared really emphasize the importance of giving time and asking the right questions.
1: Well, you know, the whole, um, I was at a candidacy exam, PhD candidacy exam two weeks ago, and it's uh, the student is, is using the philosophy of Foucault To influence coaching and I don't know how familiar you are with Foucault I'm not a huge I'm certainly not a Foucauldian scholar by any stretch I I didn't
0: catch you what what did you say what what kind of uh, Uh,
1: his name is Foucault I think it's Michael Foucault I don't even can't remember how do you
0: spell it Foucault
1: he's a French philosopher so it's F-O-U-C-A-U-L-D I think or it might be a a T.
0: okay okay
1: Foucault ends with a T okay um, but he, he's written books on, you know, discipline and punishment, and he talks about the docile. So basically, you know, and, and his whole thing with Foucault, and actually uh, the book chapter in that same one that you worked on with Tim, the one that Joey and I worked on with Ash, he was his process was critiqued by a Foucauldian scholar. Oh, okay. And Foucault looks at power and power dynamics, and power is relational. So as to keep with your coaching dynamics, you know, what that coach did is, is let athletes realize that they also have power and that it is a relational piece. Um, but we we tend to talk about docile learners or that's our ideal. You just want someone who sits there and soaks in your wonderful teaching. Or as a coach, we often talk about coachable kids. But usually we're talking about kids that listen and will do whatever you tell
0: them. Yes. What
1: we really want from a coachable kid is someone who, yeah, will listen, but will also question and will also make you listen. Yeah. Right. So that just, you know, that's the same kind of connection between, you know, that that questioning piece, and to teach kids to question their own practice, to teach athletes to question their own and your practice, is never a bad thing.
0: But it's that idea also, and and what comes to mind is, sorry, just getting a little bit of feedback here. Just going to pause for one second. Okay. Um, so what comes to mind is. So I, I've always been an avid golfer my whole life, right? And when I am playing golf, you know, and I'm I'm a social person, but in some situations, I need think time. You know, I really need think time. And w- after I'd left Canada, I would come home and I would play as much golf as I could in the summer with my brother-in-law, who's, who's quite a good player. And we had this rivalry every summer, a healthy rivalry. So... When I would I would come back, I would look forward to play the, playing uh, golf with my brother in law, and every once in a while, his friend would come out, and his friend was a yapper. So uh, so sorry. we would we and my brother in law and I we need to think our way through shots. We need to pace off yardage. I need to walk quietly to my ball, thinking about the elements, and this guy would fill the air with nonstop chatter. So you you know I'd hit my drive, and let's say I pulled my drive into the rough. So now I'm walking over to the rough. I'm evaluating. It's a part four. I'm thinking about the distance. Now I'm pacing off the exact yardage and he's, he's yapping in my ear. And even though his, his friggin' ball is on the right side of the fairway, on the far side of the fairway, he follows me to my ball yapping in my ear. And I can't go through my pre shot routine and I'm being polite, you know, and I'm listening to him. And then he'll back off at the last second as I'm looking at my shot. I step up. To my shot and I hit a shitty shot because I haven't been able to go through with my pre-shot routine. I don't even know the exact yardage. I haven't been able to think and it's that idea that I learn best and, and function best in golf uh, as an introvert and then I can, I can go through that whole process and I can still be social but I think it, it, it's that idea of many students will operate the same way. You know, and, and like you said, docile learners, you know, maybe docile learners are more introverted and they have to think their way through things. But I sometimes don't feel when I observe over, over the past couple of years, teachers and, and programs and schools, um, I don't see a lot of time given to, I see a general blanket approach rather than really thinking about students. So what, what's your take on introverts and extroverts and, and finding out learning tendencies?
1: Well, everyone's, everyone's different, right? So, I mean, in, in my, my coaching, years of coaching, just to keep with that analogy, um, you've got athletes who need that, they need to be pulled aside and quietly talk to and say, hey, you're underperforming today, you're better than this, move on. And that's all they need. Other kids need enthusiastic, over-the-top praise. Other kids just need a look. Right, and so when I say you know docile players or docile learners, I don't necessarily mean introvert extrovert because are yeah. extrovert, because you can have a docile learner who's very extrovert. Oh yeah, coach, let's do this. That sounds awesome. Let's do it. You can also have someone who needs time to process things. So I think allowing for that individuality, and allowing for the fact that yeah we're all different. How how we approach um, where we are and what we do is all different. And then to go back to where we kind of started at the beginning of this time was to look at what are people's contexts? Where do they come from? And what are their past experiences? And, uh, John Dewey, the, the great American educational philosopher uses a term, uh, called miseducative. So, you know, everyone has experiences. that that's universal, but not all experiences are educative. So in other words, his definition is if I do something, and I have a horrible time, and I never want to do it again. That is miseducative. Yeah. So if I go to phys ed and all it is is dodgeball, and I get hit in the face with the ball every time, I don't want to do dodgeball again. Ergo, I don't want to do phys ed again. I'm done. Yeah. And you can make that piece of all physical activity is now bad. Whereas it's our job as teachers to give educative experiences. Now an introverted kid needs a little bit different experience than an extroverted kid, or. You know, a kid who comes from um, a disadvantaged socioeconomic status, a kid who's been uh, traumatized because of their religious belief, uh, they need to be to for you to understand that they come to different contexts, and so we really can have phys ed for all if we're if we're paying attention to these things, and it isn't the blanket approach.
0: Yeah, I think Ash, it,
1: it's Ash, not. easy.
0: Though. Yeah, I think Ash Casey. Uh, I, th- I th- hope I'm terming this correctly, but is it everybody has their own point of implementation or point of, I forget what he had said on the podcast, but I, I think it's that idea exactly that everybody's going to come in at a certain point, right? And it's up to us to find out what point that is. Um, so I, in the pre-show, I asked you, you know, your work um, with pre-service teachers it obviously, is is very meaningful to what you do, and um, I ask all my guests, you know, and I have lots of guests from outside the the uh, world of physical education, and some from outside of education. But to me, they're, it doesn't matter, you know, because when it comes down to it, I want to know um, how wh- what um, what it is that drives them forward and how they uh, find meaning in the work that they do. Right. So as a pre, uh, pre-service teacher, you know, it's important for you to address these areas with the students that you teach. So I had you listen to an audio clip uh, at the uh, in the pre-show. So I'm going to play the audio clip again. And this is uh, from TED Radio Hour. And I've spoken about TED Radio Hour before, but it's an amazing podcast. And the host of the show is uh, Guy Raz. He can be fo- found on Twitter. Uh, at Guy Raz, G U Y R A Z. I reached out to him to let him know that his work inspires me, and I asked him if I could use some audio clips in my own podcast from his podcast, and he, and he gave me permission, which is which is amazing. So the audio clip you're going to hear is from the um, from the TED Radio Hour podcast called "The Meaning of Work," and it's by a well-known uh, researcher and um, consultant named Margaret Heffernan. And she works with lots of top uh, Fortune 500 companies and, and big organizations. So I'm going to have you listen to the audio clip, and then I'm going to ask you to share what resonates the most with you in regards to your own teaching practice and, and um, what you want to impart upon the students that you teach, okay? So here we go.
2: Well, I think that's true. I think, you know, you need that great connectedness between people. But I'm also really struck again, you know, the large number of companies I work with. And I'll say, you know, what's the driving goal here? And they'll say $60 billion revenue next year. And I look at them and I say, you have got to be joking. What on earth makes you think? that everybody's really going to give it their all to hit a revenue target. You know, you have to talk to something much deeper inside people than that. You have to talk to people about something that makes a difference to them every day if you want them to bring their best and do their best and feel that you've given them the opportunity to do the best work they've ever done.
0: So, I played that for a former Toronto argonaut, uh, Orlando Bowen, who's doing amazing work. He started a uh, a foundation called One, One Team One Voice, and he works with disadvantaged youth, and he's found real purpose in his life through a, through an ordeal he went through. Um, but everybody's different, you know so I would love to hear your thoughts on on that and, and personally but also professionally.:
2: Yeah.
1: You know, as I said earlier on our kind of pre-conversation, um, it it certainly speaks to what we know about human behavior. Whether you look at Daniel Pink's work, uh, whether you look at Peter Gray, who's a um, psychologist and looks at motivation for learning, um, you know, it, it's not about the money. It's, that's, I mean, I think what Daniel Pink says about education, he's got a little appendix in his book on, on education, is saying, you know, what we need to do is pay teachers enough so that yeah. the money's off the table. Yeah. And then let them do what they want, you know, let them do what they're good at. But you have to have that purpose. And I'm actually giving a talk in a couple days here at the Saskatchewan Physical Education Association conference. And the title is Purposeful Physette. What is our purpose? And that ties into, like we talked about, your own context, your own values. But So when I work with pre-service teachers, the the first thing, my first goal is shifting values if, if needed. Do they value phys ed as a holistic part of whole-child education? Do they value it as life-changing? Do they value it as on the same scale as other things? If not, I may not be able to, you know, get them all the way over, but my goal is to get them to see what phys ed really is and to begin to value that as an educator, and especially for generalist teachers because – In some ways, I think, and Dean Dudley and I have had this conversation before, too, but in some ways, elementary teachers, because they see the kids all day in every different subject, they get to see all the different sides. And so we don't often use that enough where, okay, so you're having, there's relationship issues in your class. Well, guess what? We can do some activities that fit the curriculum in phys ed that teach, you know, you look at Hellison's approach to, uh, you know, teaching social responsibility through physical activity. So we can do those things. So to value phys ed as as important to education. And then the next step there is developing an identity. And so, you know, you're not gonna get people to teach more phys ed by paying them more money or by telling them they have to do it. You're gonna get that by by enhancing their experience. And you know, just, i just I like to tell stories, it's it's maybe a fault, I don't know, but um, I, I was at a conference a couple of years ago and, and two two different women spoke. Uh, after a session, there was a panel session about how to get more kids active, and they each spoke from such divergent perspectives. The, the one lady stood up, she goes, you know what, I teach junior high, and I run boot camp classes, because I love boot camp, and boot camp is awesome. But I guarantee you, I'm not there today, those kids won't be doing boot camp. They, they're they probably cheering that it's not happening today, because I'm not doing boot camp. And, and I'm thinking to myself, well, because who the frick wants to do boot boot camp? Every day, all day. Like, I don't like boot camp. I'd rather go bike in the woods or something. So then this other lady stood up and she said, You know what? I actually, and she was very kind and she she was very good. And it turned, yeah. So anyway, she she just said, Well, I don't know. I, I teach elementary and so she teaches at a K 9 school. And she recently discovered a love of Zumba right, the fitness, dancing, because she's like, I love to move, I love to do stuff, I love Zumba, and she goes, so I just invited, I just thought, I'm going to start a Zumba club at the junior high, so she goes and starts the school, she now has 60 junior high kids coming to Zumba voluntarily, and it's just a different approach, do this because I do it, and you should do it too, or hey, I'm loving this, you want to join me, and you know, it was so cool, and I went and talked to the lady afterwards. And just said, "No, thank you for your perspective." And it turned out, and the whole time she was talking, she looked familiar to me. Well, I had ended up; I taught her like ten years before.
0: Oh wow!
1: And so we had a really good chat about values and things. And and you know, she she said, you know, she didn't say, "Oh, you're an amazing teacher." Ed. You know, your class changed my world. I wish she would have said that. It's always <laughs> nice if that ever happens. Yeah. But what she did say is. You know, one of the things that I learned in your class is to do what you love and love what you do and be passionate and share with your students what you love. And that's what I did. And that was so, so meaningful because it gives her that purpose and that value.
0: Yeah, and and she, obviously, she was open to embracing new experiences, right? So her finding Zumba, I assume that she... She's obviously a little older, so she hadn't, you know, had anything to do with Zumba, and then she found it. So that's, that's creating an openness to to uh, new experiences. When I met with Tim Fletcher on on Friday in our podcast, we talked about uh, the work that he's doing, the the five elements of meaningful PE. Uh, so fun, social interaction, motor competence, challenge, and delight. So we started to talk about Kretschmar, and you were the first one who introduced me to Kretchmar. Uh, or it told me about him. Didn't introduce me to him personally. Although I would love to meet the guy. Um, but uh, it really and and I share that conversation that we first had in the workshops that I run and with with different PE departments that I work with and and it's such a powerful thing because teachers really begin to reflect and think about it and and I use the example of you know I played quarterback competitively for 15 years you know 15 16 years. And nobody ever taught me how to throw a football. I threw sidearm, you know, and I was a shorter quarterback. So I would often get, uh, the ball blocked by defensive linemen. So I learned to scramble and find little holes to throw, throw through. But even though my coaches tried to get me to, to throw over the top, I couldn't do it. But I, nobody ever, I don't think back to PE. And think, oh, you know, Mister So and So taught me how to throw a football. Not at all. I learned how to throw a football because I fell in love with the sport at, in grade five. I was reading a Heisman Trophy book, and then I just fell in love with the game. And I had a football in my hands almost every day from the time I was probably eleven or twelve to the time I was twenty nine. <laughs> you know, like so. I, it, again, it goes back to I found meaning and joy in that, and and I taught myself. Yeah. So. You know, what is your your take on on that? Because when you know, when we look at the actual time that we have in P.E., it's minimal your potential to reach kids one on one. I did the numbers roughly and you're looking at one one hour, 20 minutes a year on average per student. And that's if you like them. You know what I mean? Like, I I hate to say it, but, but, you know, like the ones that, that are a pain in the ass, you, you tend to maybe give a little more less, a little less time to, hopefully not. But so what's most important here, Doug, you know, like when you're trying to really get down to the root of it and talk to teachers, look at this fun and, and joy. And Tim refers to it as delight, but delight and joy, same thing. So, can you delve into Kretschmar, you know, because I know you're a Kretschmar, you know, you really like his work. Can you delve into your take on fun versus joy in PE?
1: Oh, absolutely. And that that, that came out strong in my master's research, too. And, um, and you know, Kretschmar writes, like, he has a, a chapter in one of the TGFU uh, Joy Butler's TGFU textbook on, uh, well, Joy Butler is one of the editors, but... Um, on, you know, teaching games for understanding and the delight of human activity, human physical activity. And I personally, I prefer the term joy. He uses the term joy in other ones, but um, fun is fleeting. Fun is easy. You know, you and I can get together. We can have fun. We can go hoist a couple pints. We can have fun. And, that, and, and fun is good. But fun is not deep. And fun is not an intrinsic part of who we, like who we are meant to be. Joy is there. And so the two, and I and I wrote a blog about this a while ago, and there's, it's actually, again, part of my talk about purposeful phys ed uh, uh, on Thursday here. But so we often try and justify phys ed because you say, you know what, we need phys ed because of the health benefits. And Kretschmar's 2008 uh, article on the utilitarian, the increasing utilitarianism of elementary school phys ed talked about that health, joy, false dichotomy. And so we, we say, yep, we need kids to be healthier. We need kids to, uh, you know, reduce their comorbidities and, uh, you know, type two diabetes and all that kind of stuff, uh, which is true, but we are also designed, we are created to move every, the way that we perceive the world. Um, there's a, a movement. I think she's actually a psychologist. Well, Maybe she's exercise fizz. I'm not sure her background, but um, I think it's it's Elaine or Esther Thelen, Thelen. And she basically says, you know, we we move in order to perceive and we perceive in order to move. So what then is movement but a way of perceiving the world? And that, that's not an exact quote. That's a rough paraphrase. But we do. You look at babies. They, they need to move. They need to grab. Um, you know, even to go and shake someone's hand requires movement to connect with someone. So there's that piece that one of the reasons why phys ed is because phys ed, because it's part of who we are, and we can't we can't divorce it from there. Now, as a bonus, when we get to those, well, let me say one more thing. The other piece is that joy, and that speaks to motivation. You didn't pick up a football because someone told you to. You didn't pick it up because you were going to win a trophy, and you were going to go and play in in CIS, and you are going to go and spend 15 years playing this. That's not why you picked it up. You read a book, you were like, hey, this is cool. He picked it up. I love this sport. This makes me feel good. Now, there's elements of competence in there. There's elements of confidence, building fundamental movement skills, all those kind of things. But at the root of that, none of that happens without the joy. So if we have a joy-based, and I know Tim is working on aspects of this too, but if we have a joy-based physical education program, if the way I teach my pre service teachers is from a foundation of joy guess what we get the health benefits and the example i use all the time is and i don't know if um if you've been to a skate park recently or if your kids andy are skateboarders you want to see hard work dedication and sheer delight or joy go to a skate park now you're also going to see a lot of odd graffiti and a lot of swearing and different things that there but no one's paying these kids there's no trophies. There's often blood on the concrete. They're doing it because of that deep feeling of joy. Yeah. When, like I like I, I'm I'm not a skateboarder, I'm a mountain biker. I like to but I did a lot of I started to do a lot of kind of trials riding to get better at balance and I spent a lot of time when my kids were little in the skate park and I'd be the only guy there on a mountain bike trying to learn how to do this stuff. But to watch these kids who are trying to land a kickflip, you know, Dropping down three or four flights of stairs, and when they finally land it, it's that moment of pure joy.
0: Yeah, that's what's motivating them all the way through. It's
1: it's it's tough. It's difficult, um, but that's that core piece.
0: And it's what you're saying um, speaks volumes when it comes to creating uh, relevancy in programs and and some you know you know Aaron Beatley, University of Kentucky. Uh, the name? So he worked with Pan Grazi on the uh, the book Dynamic uh, Physical Education. So he's the author of that. So he's yeah. he's one of the other uh, researchers in the Fundamental Movement Podcast with Dean, myself, and Joey and Nathan. So you know he was talking about that idea of of relevancy in PE and creating these PE curriculums that allow kids to take action on their learning outside of PE. And when I, you know, the majority of programs that I look at, very well intentioned teachers and department heads that are very thoughtful and reflecting about, uh, reflecting on the curriculum, but oftentimes just a still thinking they have to offer this massive blanket of, of different choices, which is important, but I think not enough time is spent to really look at how kids can, can take action in their own communities outside of PE and then tailor yep. their PE programs to create those relevant learning experiences.
1: Well, It's interesting. I spent five years teaching in a, in a junior high that was, I guess, best way to put it is, is a low socioeconomic neighborhood. Uh, lots of issues, lots of kids coming with a lot of baggage from home. Um, some wonderful kids certainly, but some kids that were really disadvantaged, and you know, in that community. So I, you know, I played basketball, um, you know, through high school and all the way through, and you're kind of stuck doing that when you're six five. But yeah. you know, gymnastics didn't seem to be a keen option for me for some reason. But I
0: could see you on a balance um, beam. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, buddy. Yeah,
1: iron cross. Yeah, it's an eight foot. It's an eight foot wingspan. Yeah, uh, Iron Cross <laughs> so you know I I did teach the students basketball but I came to realize that for them and their community they're never going to get 10 people together on a court to play ball they're going to be dead, but yet there's tons of free courts like there's we got six courts at the school that are outside open all, the, all year round all the time there's a community center with outdoor courts and so my philosophy was then okay I want to teach them stuff that they can use so we did all the basketball games you know they didn't know how to play horse or champion we played that around the world two on two three on three we never touched anything remotely related to five on five because they couldn't take it in their community and i kind of stumbled on that organically but that's something i talk with my students about too you know if, if every single kid in your community plays community soccer do you really need to do a big long soccer unit or might you? Be suited to do something else. And that's consistent with physical literacy too and looking at, you know, what are the things that are missing? What are opportunities that are missing? If you're working at, you know, in Canada here, if you're working at a school that has a large amount of new immigrants, you may choose to do more hockey because hockey is something that's identified with Canadian. And it's a way of welcoming people so that when others are talking about things, these kids know what they're talking about. Yeah. So you know, it's it's really tailoring things. You're absolutely right.
0: Yeah, um, very cool. And I, I think that that uh, can you um, recommend uh, any Kretschmar papers that that people might have access to?
1: Um, yeah, certainly his his the the one that I mentioned the the 2008. I, I think it's the mixed blessing of of utility. Or maybe it's just um, the utilitarian. Oh, I can't speak anymore. Anyways, the one about elementary physical education yeah <laughs> becoming over utilitarianized yeah um, that one's really good. It's, it, it's hard sometimes. That's that's an issue that that us academics have to deal with better. And that's what Tim and I were trying to put a grant together to try and do is to to get some of this stuff into the hands of people in a format that that they can use it. But um, He's got several, um, you know, the one in the, in the TGFU. That's a great book all the way around. It's um, – I'm going to grab it off my wall. Uh, Teaching Games for Understanding, Linda Griffin and Joy Butler are the editors. And his chapter, which is uh, highlighted in my, yeah. my version. So oh,
0: yeah, there you go. I'm holding this
1: up for all the people that can't see <laughs> yeah. on the podcast. But, um, yeah, teaching games for understanding and the delights of human activity. And
0: he he
1: talks a little bit about the, you know, the motivation piece. Um, and it's the motive, it's, it's that confidence competence loop. Yeah. Right. You develop some confidence. Like I, I share with my students, like I learned to wakeboard two years ago. Um, never wakeboard before in my life. I fairly water skied. I'm more of a tubing kind of a guy. Yeah. Um, (laughs) But a buddy of mine is huge into wakeboarding yeah. and said, hey, let's give it a try. But I can snowboard, yeah. right? And so my confidence from snowboarding, I'm like, yeah, I can stand on a board and rock it down a mountain. So surely I can be towed behind a boat. Yeah. Now, I took some hard falls and it took a while to figure it out. But those things connect,
0: Yeah.
1: right? And you could go through. But ultimately, it's about getting up there. And for me, it's like, oh, this is cool. This is another way to apply some of these skills. And I can seek joy out of this. Yeah. So... Yeah, those those are kind of the key ones from Kretschmer. I mean, he's had a long career and written written a lot of stuff. And I I I need to spend more time diving into his work as well.
0: Yeah, no, that's good advice, and I'll include that. Yeah, I'll include that in the show notes. Um, So I'm going to switch gears here, and uh, what I'm going to ask you to do is to define your sources of inspiration or things that really drive you. Any resources, but completely outside the world of. Physical education and education, because I think so. That's one of the big things. Sometimes we can get too caught up in our own subject area, and I I must admit that some of the best learning that uh, ever took place with my own professional development was when I began to look outside of my subject area, and then even begin to look outside of education, and then kind of take those big ideas out and and apply them to to what I do so what are some things outside of education physical education that inspire you resources anything that comes to mind
1: yeah um, first thing that comes to mind for for me is my parents because you know I was very fortunate to be able to grow up on a farm and it's kinda the dying breed of of small family farm where everyone pitches in but we had a lot of fun and you know I was free to free to move across You know, 340 acres of all sorts of different play space. Yeah. And, you know, my parents allowed me to do that. My mom was very much a physical activity motivator. She was the one behind bike rides and going to the park and doing these kind of things. My dad was, you know, worked his butt off but also found time to have fun. And also, you know, we'd be working hard and you'd come around a corner carrying a bucket of tools and he'd be there with a gallon bucket of water and chuck it on you and then take off. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it didn't happen every day, it didn't happen all the time, but you knew that sense was there. Yeah. And so for them to give me the freedom to kind of be who I was as a kid and to be, you know, i it's funny, in my master's work, I ended up writing poems about, and I'm not a poet, so um, yeah. writing poems about my own personal journey through what it means to be active, and it's always been a part of my life. And I think, you know, my mom didn't care about ripped jeans, or dirty faces at the end of the day—that was just part of being a kid for her. And you know, we know that kids these days don't have that experience. So they were really—you know—the more I look back on it, the more I thank them for for their role and that that piece. So that's kind of the bigger, yeah. One, and then connected to that is, you know, what is—is my own students because, or sorry, my own my own kids because they help me connect better to my students.
0: Um, they help me how old are remember. They why I do what I do because even teaching pre-service teachers, it's still about the kids out there. Yeah. How old are your kids now?
1: Oh, they are, um, 18 and 17.
0: Okay. So heading, heading to university soon.
1: Yeah. Yeah. My son's going to university this fall and my daughter will be going into grade 12. So it's, uh, yeah, different piece, but, and, you know, I do agree that, um, if you get outside your subject area, there's there's opportunity for, for growth and to pull things in. Um, I mentioned John Dewey before. I've been really getting into his works on, um, you know, the different aspects. Hey, did you know that I think we have the exact same cell phone case. Buddy? Oh,
0: there we go. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I told
1: you I was ADD. So. <laughs> Um, you know, John Dewey is still in education, but to take his theories and philosophies and apply them to what we do in phys ed has been important. Um, you know, two—I'll give two other quick ones. Um, I went to a conference a number of years ago when I was working with Everactive Schools, and I—it was on—it was called Transformational Enterprise: Business for Good. And it was the idea, and it, it really uh, Margaret Heffernan's piece reminded me of it. It, it was the idea of why. And it was from a very business perspective. Um, but it was the idea of what is your motivating factor? And it was reiterated there too. It shouldn't be money. So, for example, they had a guy on a panel there who started his own sustainable coffee roasting and grinding. He kind of cut out the middlemen, paid the farmers in Costa Rica way better than they were being paid. And someone asked him, he's like, Well, do you make any money? And he's like, Well, yeah, it's a business. I wouldn't do it if I wasn't making money. But making mo- money, is not the main reason I do it. So, of course, it's a factor. It has to be a factor. But he says, that's my main goal in business is I want to run a sustainable, um, you know, business for good, basically. Yeah. And he goes, I can do that. So someone who, you know, the small town, whatever, business owner who who pays their employees a fair wage, treats them well, that's business for good because they're supporting families. They're supporting... You know, the growth of community. Um, So I think we can take some knowledge that that we get from business. And sometimes in education, it's a, oh, you better not, that's business, that's big corporation stuff. But there's some really good things that we can learn. Um, So I'm trying to read more that, uh, you know, Daniel Pink's, I mentioned that earlier, the Drive book that I think pretty much everyone's read, but that's from a business perspective. But we look at it from a motivational and that that angle. And then the last one I'll mention is, free to learn by Peter gray, who's the psychologist. And, uh, you know, it is about what he calls the human educative instinct that we are, you know, we're created to, to learn, you know, and it's, it's curiosity, it's playfulness and it's sociability. And that's kind of where, and I, I do used to do an assignment with my students that are just kind of, what are you curious about? And they, and then they play with it and then they share it. Yeah. And so, you know, that's, that's been really foundational for me is is to think about things of what, you know, what am I curious about and then play with them. So I'm curious about how joy interacts with pre-service teachers and how, you know, how joy impacts physical activity. So you start to play with it, right? And then eventually you want to share what you've learned.
0: Yeah. And again, it's a, it's a very personal journey, right? So what you're describing is your own personal journey that is rooted in lifelong learning, but then uh, applied, you know to your professional life. And what I always say is that there is no difference between our personal and professional selves, you know, uh, especially as an, as an educator. So, um, I'm going to finish off with one last thing for you. I'm going to put you in the hot seat. Um, and I'm going to ask you to, um, describe the greatest life lesson that you learned through hardship. It's
2: hard to pick one, you
1: know,
0: Take your time. Think.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I'm going to go with the recent with the recent one because it's um, there's a I think it's a human tendency to want more, um, and not just not from a greed perspective, but just to not not be content with what we have. And that idea of contentment is such an elusive concept, especially in our North American society here or Western society. You know, it's all about convenience and what can I have bigger, better, faster, stronger, you know, these kind of things. And so a number of years ago, I, you know, I had a very good job, very good position. And, and another one came up that I thought might be just a little bit better. And I thought I should apply and I won't give a lot of details cause I, I don't want to give any, I don't want to hurt anyone with this. and I don't know that anyone would be, but um, I applied for this position, thought that I was a shoe in and didn't even get shortlisted. And, and I just thought, how could that happen? And, and it, it wasn't like I was saying to myself, man, I'm so awesome. How could that happen? But I'll be brutally honest. There's a little bit of peace in me that going, hey, I've got the skills and, and I've got as much, if not more skills, research ability, et cetera, than the other people that applied for this. And why didn't I get shortlisted? And I just, for about a day and a half, I just really started to question, like, can I even do this stuff? But then I started to look at it and I've got, uh, I've got family members that, that, you know, really struggle with some mental health and have really gone through some tough adversity. And I, I started to put it in perspective and say, you know what, I applied, I, I have a, I have an amazing job here at the university. I, I really, you know, I could I couldn't ask for anything more, but yet I did. Yeah. And, and not that it's wrong to seek out and go for further and try and get better, but I just thought you know what, I, I need to take this and learn from it. I need to learn. And so the, the biggest thing at that time, I was doing so many things to try and be a better professional self. You know, I was working with the National Health and Phys Ed organization. I was, you know, running conferences. I was, and they're all good things. But I, what I learned from that experience was I really need to prioritize what are the most important things for me. And, you know, up at the top of my list comes faith, family, health, those kind of things. And yeah, I want to be a good professional. I want to be a really good person at my job. But sometimes um, that has to come second. Yeah, And in fact, maybe more than sometimes it has to come second. So it was just a really good, it, it was a self-reflective moment, is what it was. There was a bit of a pity party to start, <laughs> um, but it went to a good place. And, you know, I look at, you know, some of the people that I know who have had amazing jobs and were living their dream and had kind of a dream job for 20 years and then it all, it all collapsed in a heartbeat and it was gone. And now they're struggling and trying to find, you know, trying to find themselves because they identified their whole selves through work. And so that was an important lesson. And and I was sharing this with a colleague of mine um, here at the university. And she said, yeah, I, she did her first kind of nine years of university, just peddled the medal all the way through. And then she had her first sabbatical and she goes, I, I bought a dog in my first month, and that was my sabbatical. I had a dog. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she goes, I didn't get a pay increase that year. I didn't do anything. My dean was questioning why I should be a faculty member, but I needed to do that.
0: That's, that's very cool. And It totally resonates with me what you said about not getting – sorry, I'm getting feedback again – not getting that job. Because, you know, my blog, PYPP with Andy, that is a direct result of falling flat on my face. And there, there was a job at a well-known international school. I thought up until this, and this is a number of years ago now, um, but I, th- you know, I worked hard. I felt I was good at what I did. I, I really cared about students. I, I loved teaching PE. And in my own mind, I thought, baby, this job is mine. <laughs> you know. And I sent in my resume, and I wasn't even shortlisted. And when I found oh. that out, it was like getting punched in the stomach and I wasn't being overly confident. I just believed in my abilities and I believed that I was the right person for that job. And the response was, oh, we think you need, you know, you don't show enough professional growth, like documented professional growth. And i, I it was kind of a, an eye-opener and I thought, you know what? I had great references, but that's all I had. So I made a promise to myself in my heart that I would never ever be in that position again. And then I thought, what am I going to do here? And I thought, i got to write a book. I've, I've got to write a book. But I started my blog. And I thought, I'm going to begin to document my journey. But at first, it was just to, to to get that next job. And after I got that job, I thought, I, I'm a hypocrite. If, if I stop write, writing my blog, I'm a hypocrite. Because I began writing my blog to, to show my professional journey. So, I stuck with it and I stuck through. And, and, you know, to this day, I don't blog as much. But, you know, the my blog played a huge, huge role in my professional learning journey. So, again, experiencing that failure sometimes might feel like a curse, but it's a blessing in disguise. Right?
1: Yeah, hands down. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it really is.
0: Yeah. So, okay, uh, Doug, I want to thank you for your time. Um, now, you can be found on Twitter at...
1: Uh, real original, Doug underscore Gledi. Yeah. Gledi is spelled G-L-E-D-D-I-E. Okay. Doug is spelled D-O-U-G. <laughs> yeah.
0: And, uh, your blog is great. It's one of the first ones that I really connected with. Um, you know, we connected early on, but what's your blog?
1: Oh, thanks, Annie. It's, uh, uh, purposefulmovement.net.
0: Purposefulmovement.net. Okay, um, so those are the two um I'll, I'll include that in the show notes, but I'd like to thank you for taking the time to be on my podcast and uh look forward to meeting you one day in person uh but continuing to connect virtually until that happens so thanks, Doug
1: absolutely and thanks for the uh thanks for the opportunity. This has been fun,
0: yeah. Uh, Just stay on the line. I'm just going to stop the recording. Everybody, thank you for listening to uh, this episode with Dr. Doug Gluddy from the University of Alberta, and I hope you come back to listen to future podcasts. Thanks for listening to the Run Your Life podcast by Andy Bassett. To check out show notes, get some more information about Andy as well as his guests, head to our website, 21clradio.com.